Hello, everyone. This is Ruben Fleischer, the director of Zombieland, the movie you're about to watch. Zombieland Double Tap. This is the sequel 10 years later from the original. It's 2019 right now, and we made the first one in 2009. So it's long overdue, to say the least. This was an idea that we had uh, very early on. I think it actually might have gone back to the first Zombieland, an idea that the Columbia lady would um, beat up some zombies. But uh, we were only able to do it on this one. After all this time, well, what can I say? But so apologies in advance to everyone listening for my monotonous voice. I'll do my best to add some life to it as we go through this. But... Um, I appreciate you listening to this commentary as this is a movie I'm very proud of and grateful to have made. Uh, it was amazing to get the cast back together and to be shooting again in Atlanta, Georgia, where this scene takes place uh, in a small town outside of Atlanta. We shot at this courthouse and covered it all in snow, which was pretty cool. In a world without YouTube? Who was entertained by a homer? And it was really fun creating the post-apocalyptic landscape of Zombieland 10 years later. And I really wanted that drone shot, that high, wide shot flying in to establish the world. Uh, if you look carefully, there's all kinds of destruction everywhere. And that's something we tried to implement in any of our big exteriors that I'll point out along the way. This is a, a scientist's lab that we actually shot in a hallway at the mall location, which we'll see later uh, and in one afternoon. That's my father playing a deceased uh, scientist who the zombie rips his eye out. So that's a nice way to treat your parents. But he said he wanted a close-up in this movie, so I had to uh, figure out a way to get him in without having to do any acting. And playing a corpse was seemingly what he would be best at. Sorry, Dad. Let's play name that and then this is a little house that we shot right outside uh, the courthouse, actually. We shot this the courthouse in the morning, and then we shot this in the afternoon. So a half a day each for these. It was a much longer one, but it took a really long time, and I didn't do any coverage, which I regret. So we had to uh, cut into it with that flare. As we introduce our different types of zombies, the Homer... The Hawking and the Ninja. And then this was actually the very first day of shooting before we shot anything with the cast. We decided to go out in the field across the street from Pinewood in uh, Atlanta and just do our classic opening credit sequence with the Phantom camera, which shoots up to a thousand frames a second to create super, super slow mo. And we did. Uh, this not in fact on the south lawn of the White House. That is a digital CG version of the White House, but this is a empty field across the street from the stages at which we shot. All of the DC stuff, like those buildings, the White House, the Washington Monument were all put in in post. Uh, so those are all digital map paintings. And no zombies were actually harmed in the shooting of this film. No one. Uh, actually lost their heads. That's all done digitally as well. And really happy with the way that this all turned out. Um, we 
Without being too self-congratulatory, I feel like we set the bar pretty high with the opening credits of the first film. So we tried to capture that same spirit with the slow-mo, with the Metallica. We were so grateful to have Metallica in the first one. I think it set the tone perfectly for the film. And so we were really excited to have um, Master of Puppets this time. It was uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls in the first movie. But we were felt really, really grateful uh, to Metallica for letting us use their song again and for being such so great supporters of the film. And the credits were once again done by an amazingly talented man named Ben Conrad and his new company, Gen Pop, to create these tracked in type that gets knocked by our cast. Uh, I think that it was a signature of the first film and we wanted to recapture that spirit with this one. So I'll talk a little bit about how we came to make this movie 10 years later. After the first one came out, a script was written that was um, really great, but not exactly what everyone wanted to do. So we put it on the shelf and we all went our separate ways. Some went on to get nominated for Oscars or win Oscars and others of us made other movies that maybe didn't perform as their first film. And so uh, after Gangster Squad, I was thinking about how much fun it was making Zombieland. And so I talked to the cast in the studio and the writers about trying to uh, create a sequel for it. And so we worked with the original writers, Rhett and Paul, who were busy writing Deadpool. And we found this incredibly talented writer, Dave Callahan, who pitched us a story and the cast signed on uh, and agreed to do it. And then it was just a matter of finding a window when they were all available, which was in January of 2019 through March of 2019. And we shot this movie in, I think, 41 days, which is actually fewer days than the original movie. And we had a smaller second unit. So even though it was a bigger sequel, we shot it in less time uh, with fewer days and for bigger action. You made me sleep on the Lincoln couch? Mm-hmm. Is that better? That's much better. Good. I love you so This uh, whole opening White House sequence was a, a really fun introduction to the cast to, we, we, you know, Columbus said I was talking over it, but if you're listening, he says, uh, go big or go home. And the biggest home that they could think of was the White House. So we thought that was a great place to kind of start the movie off. And so we uh, went ahead and uh, filmed this in a variety of locations. This, which we called the motor pool, we shot um, in a warehouse just uh, nearby to the stage and made it look like the presidential warehouse. The Lincoln bedroom and the Oval Office um, sets that we actually were hand-me-down sets that we got from Veep. Veep had just finished shooting, and we were lucky enough to get their Oval Office, and I'm pretty sure they provided the Lincoln bedroom too, and then we built some ancillary um, hallways and other things um, to join the rooms. But this, uh, this Oval Office was the Veep Oval Office, and I had the idea that the the cast had been living there for maybe a couple of years, and so they'd personalized it with their own kind of stuff. Um, I imagine that they could go to any store and kind of scavenge what they wanted. 
instead of the presidential flags, we have a pirate flag and a checkered flag, which feels like what Tallahassee would have put in. And yeah, this they've made the Oval Office kind of their family room. There was a, a little sequence that preceded this got cut out where the cast, I mean, uh, Columbus and Wichita wake up in bed and they hear a noise and they come down the stairs and then they see Little Rock and they all have their guns out and then they walk up to find that it's Tallahassee behind the tree, but we cut that out because it just kind of seemed a little unnecessary. Um, but here we established the idea of Elvis and Graceland and that as something that's important to Tallahassee and something that Little Rock may pretend like she's not interested in, but later will want to go try and check out. Yeah, and so all the set dressing we had to clear. We imagined that, like, you know, some of these paintings were in the Smithsonian, and, and they went and took them, and they can kind of do whatever they want. Um, and there was elements of each of their styles. You know, I imagine Tallahassee would be responsible for the taxidermy, and maybe Wichita was responsible for the finer art, or maybe Columbus. Um, but they each contributed a little bit to it, board games and other kind of family stuff. But yeah, here we're establishing Little Rock is a little bird who wants to leave the nest and uh, kind of the classic growing pains of a teenager who is sick of her parents and wants to go out on her own. This was a funny kind of walking dead nod given the huge success of that show. Uh, it debuted after Zombieland, but has become, I guess, the most beloved uh, zombie TV show, at least. And so we want to give it a little nod. Um, I read the comic, The Walking Dead, in preparation for making Zombieland. Um, but the show had not been made at that time, so I just read the comic. So I thought it would be nice to acknowledge them. This Hope Diamond um, you can get for 60 bucks online. It's a same size and replica of the real Hope Diamond, but is only $60 and I think is made of glass. Jesse and Emily, uh, Emma, have just such great chemistry together. And uh, this was among our first scenes that we shot with them. And so it was great to just kind of reorient ourselves. That first scene uh, where he's putting the stickers over Abe Lincoln. And then this scene, I think we're maybe our first day of shooting, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but they just instantly fell right back into their roles and are obviously such amazing actors and know their characters so well and each other so well that the chemistry or uh, lack thereof was uh, immediate, which was really nice just to be back where we left off. All these exterior map paintings of uh, the White House are entirely CG. There was one before this. But those shots, there's not even a uh, photographic plate for that. It's all done in a computer by a very talented uh, company named Crafty Apes, who are in Atlanta. And they did uh, a fair amount of the work in this movie. We had, uh, I think, five, four or five different uh, VFX vendors, and I'll point out different ones as we go through it. Um, this location, which is the hallway, uh, was actually a medical facility Actually, it's a medical kind of, I don't know exactly what it is, actually. But it's a building in Atlanta where they've used it to play the White House in several movies. I think Selma and 
the first man were recent ones, but uh, we added a staircase, so that staircase they go up and down doesn't actually lead anywhere. That was built on set. I want to give credit to our incredible production designer, Martin Wist, who was really responsible for this post-apocalyptic world. Every single location, like this exterior right here, we had to make it look really aged. So that road, we had an incredible greens crew who would come and bring in all these overgrown beads and put down leaves and dirt to make it as if no one had driven on that road for a long time. Same with this uh, mall exterior, which is a combination of production design. Those Some of those cars were there in real, as was a lot of those weeds. But then the mall, we had to do some cleanup work with to make it look post-apocalyptic. Same as this interior. So this is the interior of that same exterior that we just saw. We got clearance on all these real stores to be able to put them in H&M and Forever 21. And then this was a wing of the mall that didn't really have any stores that were still around while, while we were shooting. There was another wing of the mall that was working, but they let us uh, do whatever we want to this. So we, you know, drove a truck through a a window. There's a little Garfield 3 Easter egg that'll pay off later for anyone who hasn't seen the movie. I don't want to ruin it, but you might know. This was originally scripted as a Jessica zombie who was so dumb that she was attacking her own reflection. She was, uh, the idea was that if there was a Homer Simpson uh, zombie, there would also be a Jessica Simpson zombie. And uh, she was kind of dumb too, but um, didn't really get the joke that she was attacking her own reflection. So we remove the Jessica joke. But yeah, we drove that truck through an old Navy and kind of the, the mall was really cool and let us just go wild in here and uh, get rid of whatever we wanted. The Zombie the Killer of the Year, I was so happy to be able to include two of these um, in this film. The first one just had one, which was a lady dropping a piano on a zombie's head and crushing him. So we're, we could go a little more cartoony with these and the thresher was a fun idea. That's my brother driving it. He's in a he's in a bunch of the movies I've made. He wasn't in the first Zombieland, but he's been in everything else since. And uh, he did a great job. It was Dave Sanderman, uh, the guy attacking the zombie. But yeah, the zombie kill of the year kind of becomes Tallahassee's Twinkie, as it were, in this movie. It's his goal to achieve the greatest zombie kill of the year. And in the end, we'll see if he succeeds. And he actually uh, ends up with the zombie kill of the century with his... Buffalo Jump, which he's setting up now, uh, which will later pay off. But yeah, he's going to tell us about how Native Americans used to force buffalo off a cliff in order to kill them. And that's a tactic that he'll use later when he runs the zombies off the top of the roof, just like this, leading to what will become his zombie kill the century. This was a funny scene. Uh, there's a fair bit of improv in the movie. Jesse's line that preceded this where he says, you shot your alcohol with your gun, uh, was an improv. And it was also a callback to the first movie where he says, you almost knocked over your alcohol with your knife. And that was one that Jesse had, I think, locked and loaded, ready to go. But it was so uh, funny when he said it. This candle shop, we kind of had to build from scratch. And one of the joys of movie making is having to get thousands of candles to create what would be uh, a candle shop. And so the shelves are all there from some store that had closed, but my assistant uh, actually had to call different candle manufacturers and see if people would lend us candles for this scene. And so I forget the name, I think they were called Goose Creek 
their branding. You can see somewhere in here. But they uh, gave us, I think, 5,000 candles to use uh, for the movie. And while we damaged a few of them, I think we gave most of them back. Uh, but this was a funny concept that, like, the entire mall would had been looted, but in the post-apocalypse, there's still a relatively intact candle shop. And there was a whole Paul Blart thing. There's just a—she just calls him Paul Blart there uh, real quick. But there, in the script, there was a much longer Paul Blart thing where they're riding their scooters through the mall, and they see a poster of Paul Blart. And uh, I think Columbus has imagined that was the last movie you ever saw, but— um, the Paul Blart people would not let us clear their poster, so we were not able to include that joke in the movie. But we did get a nice little Paul Blart nod when she, when Madison calls uh, Tallahassee Paul Blart. Should say a little bit about Zoe Deutsch, this uh, young actress that plays Madison. She um, came into the audition. I'd never seen her anything before, and she completely blew me away. Uh, in the audition, she was so funny and had such a fully formed sense of the character, this kind of valley girl, uh, Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton obsessed, 2006, Juicy Couture, Von Dutch character, that I was just truly like blown away. She kind of just took the role off the table as soon as she uh, auditioned. And um, while she was reading, I actually Googled her because I was like, how is it possible that someone so funny and so talented and and so good-looking, I would not be on my radar. And uh, as she was auditioning, I was Googling her, which is not a very polite thing to do. And I saw that her father is Howard Deutsch, who directed Pretty in Pink, one of my all-time favorite movies, and also um, Some Kind of Wonderful. And her mom is Leah Thompson, who uh, was in Some Kind of Wonderful, as well as the Back to the Future movies. And so I said, it's no wonder she's so talented. It must be genetic. But yeah, it, I think it's a pretty heavy task to have to act opposite Jesse, Woody, Emma, Abby, and just come in as the new kid. But she came in with guns blazing, and she had us all laughing so much uh, in every scene. Her improvs were so funny. Even just her pr pronunciations of words uh, were so funny. Her weird take on a valley girl. For example, here where she got where she says, "This is sorry, random." I'd never heard anyone say soy instead of so, but I guess she was in either Australia or South Africa, and that's how they say it, and she just thought it was really funny, soy, random, and so that became her modifier, which she uses a couple times in the movie, and every time she said it, I think we all would crack up. And this is one of my favorite jokes uh, in the movie that doesn't get a ton of laughs, but uh, she says... Uh, this is the Oval Office, why do they call it that? And I was sure that that would be a big laugh, and that's one of the joys of watching a movie with an audience is you can hear what people react to, and it never got a big laugh. So we kind of cut around the joke to try and get the laugh off the reaction, um, which worked a little better. But uh, for some reason with Madison, people like her being dumb, but not too dumb. And some of those like on-the-nose jokes like uh, just didn't play, even though they're pretty funny. I like uh, in this scene, there's a callback to 406. He says that you're, you're 406 pretty, which is a reference to the character 406 in the first movie played by Amber Heard. And uh, I think it's a nice little inside joke, which again, when you watch a movie with the audience, it's nice when it gets acknowledgement from 
the people in the theater who appreciate the reference to the first film. Uh, this is a joke that we built in post that push in on uh, Abraham Lincoln with the stickies falling off was something our visual effects editor built and pitched. And I thought it was so funny that we put in the movie, but um, we had to put those post-its on digitally and have them fall off digitally. But that was an incredible uh, suggestion by our VFX editor. And I'm a big believer in if it's funny and it makes the movie better, like I don't care who the idea comes from, whether it's, uh, you know, I've been in situations where uh, somebody in an ADR recording session would pitch a joke and that makes it into the movie. Oh yeah, that was us having sex. Rule number one. Yeah, maybe rule number 32 for her. I'm home. Oh my god, you're back. I mean, you're back or whatever. Let's go. Cool. Yeah, I'm not staying. I just came to get some weapons. At one o'clock in the morning. These guys are incredible improvisers, and on the first film, we improvised a ton, and a lot of the big jokes in the first movie were a result of improv, and the same uh, was the true with this one. I'll try and point them out as they come along, but, uh, you know, Rhett and Paul are so talented, the writers of the movie, and the script was incredibly funny to start with, so we were in really great shape. I'm not taking anything away from them, but it's just incredible when you have a really strong piece of material that if you were just to say those lines, it would be a great movie. But um, when you're able to take that as a starting place and then build off of it, it gets even better. I just also want to acknowledge, I was talking over it, but that Code Red Mountain dude just makes me laugh because that's another callback to the first movie. We tried to like seed things throughout and while we're on the motor pool here, this my idea for this room was that it was kind of like Tallahassee's man cave. And so, uh, the, again, the production design department did an incredible job filling it with stuff he would have pilfered from throughout. But I think that's like a rocket launcher behind Emma. There's all kind of handmade weapons that he uh, built that the props department had fun making, all these like crazy saws and clubs and maces. Um, those spacemen we imagined in the space pod that he would have got from the Air and Space Museum down on the mall and brought to the White House. And then just all kinds of other stuff that he uh, found. There's a corner that we didn't even feature with uh, a bunch of, you know, crummy vinyl sofas and a TV. There's Big Buck Hunters. That's Dale Earnhardt's car, number three, that our uh, picture car coordinator got for the film. We actually, it's really funny. We I got in trouble because... Uh, I said I wanted something really big and crazy in there. And so just I threw out off the top of my mind uh, the Oscar Mayer truck, like the Wienermobile. And so production jumped through fences, I mean, jumped through hoops to get the Wienermobile there for the movie. And it was actually there. And they brought it into the set. And it was just so huge and looked so silly that I said, forget it. You guys got to lose that from the set. And so they went to all this effort to get the Wienermobile and then we didn't use it. And I don't think the Oscar Mayer people were thrilled, but sometimes those are the breaks. Uh, this was a really cool location that we never really get the full impact of, but it was an old greenhouse that uh, was abandoned and overgrown that we shot that scene with Berkeley and uh, Little Rock in 
and we tried to find locations that were very, very overgrown uh, as a starting place so that we could just kind of build into it. This shot I'm really proud of. I have to give credit to our uh, Steadicam operator, BJ, who um, executed it, but this is a really long take. It was in the script written like a West Wing walk and talk, and I wasn't a huge West Wing fan, so I, I had to go watch on YouTube a bunch of West Wing and was blown away by their Steadicam moves, but the, what they had were tons of people moving through and going around, and we didn't really have that, so I decided to weave this shot through the through the downstairs, upstairs, and then uh, it extends all the way to Madison's entrance un uninterrupted in one cut. So this is, uh, I think, about a two-and-a-half-minute shot. I'm very proud of this shot and more proud of BJ for holding that incredibly heavy steady cam for the whole time. I should mention our director of photography, Chung Hoon Chung, who lit this uh, environment in order to be able to do this 360 uh, shot, which isn't easy to do, is to light in all directions without seeing the lights. Uh, but Chung Hoon Chung is a master uh, cinematographer. He shot the original Korean old boy, The Handmaiden. He shot the first It in America and uh, a bunch of other great movies. And I was thrilled to work with him on this one. He brought so much to the table. All the actors look terrific and the action is really good. And I think there's a lot of style. Uh, like this shot, for example, which still hasn't cut and was a great collaborator. And that's the staircase case I mentioned earlier that leads nowhere that we built as a big set piece into this location. I like that there's a mix of things like the Constitution in the background. Uh, for anyone who's paying attention, that painting that has a hole cut on the left is a painting of Taft, which Tallahassee says earlier in the movie that he used a Taft to wrap his present, and that was the painting supposedly through which he cut out Taft. And we thought it'd be funny just to have it still hanging on the wall. And yeah, this Law and Mordor shirt makes me laugh every time. I thought it'd be funny if she was wearing one of Columbus's nerd shirts. And she, there's a couple that he wears throughout the movie. I like the, uh, the Dragon's Lair shirt that he also wears. Um, but uh, Emma, Zoe, Woody also great in order to be able to do a long shot like that. You have to rely on the actors not screwing up at all. And they ran that take, which I called my Birdman shot, because uh, Emma had done lots of long takes in that movie. A lot. This uh, White House, I should mention, the only thing we really built were the stairs, uh, the bottom of those columns and the door, and uh, sort of the flat facade of the uh, very front of the White House above the stairs. So I would say 85% of this White House is done in post. And even the stuff that was practical, they had to dirty up and make it look older to match the rest of the White House. All those vines, everything, it's all CG. Even that stuff on the left over there is all uh, matte paintings. Again, done by Crafty Apes, who did a terrific job with our matte painting. So you can see the grass blowing is uh, practical, but even that ivy on the right is fake, as is that wall and those windows and everything. And this scene was shot um, in the car. It was shot practically up to a point. It was shot on the day outside the White House location, which was an old cul-de-sac that had been built um, for housing 
development that never happened. So that's why it was all overgrown and left, but had roads. There was no actual houses, but they had built the roads for this development, and we were able to shoot there. And it also is the same location where we shot the Graceland exterior. So as they pull into Graceland, you'll later see that's the same overgrown housing development. That one was at night. Uh, that's why we're able to kind of use it for two locations, because that's a night exterior, and this was day. And uh, yeah, that the road, the curb, everything was there and overgrown. And then we uh, filled in the rest of, with the White House. Now this here is shot on a green screen on a stage. Um, and we shot all the plates. So the plates are the, the photographic elements behind them at this location. So we did a full 360 because we knew we were gonna shoot this on a stage later. But this was shot on a green screen. And I think, once again, Crafty did such a good job uh, with all these comps, because if you asked me if this was green screen or practical, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you, uh, except for the fact that I was there when we shot it. Uh, but this is, uh, I think, pretty good work and a really funny uh, joke when she says that uh, she didn't pull a gun on them, she slept on them. And that whole exterior right there is all CG, with the exception of the car and the grass in the front. This was a joke that doesn't play that I thought was so funny. The idea was that she'd be shooting something that doesn't matter anymore. So that was a uh, Brinks truck that had turned over and those were bags of money. But we were never wide enough to appreciate that, that that's a Brinks truck, but that those are money bags. So I think it's just super random that she's shooting these bags and we don't really have any context for what it is. But I thought it would be a good scene opener to have, you know, this explosion, then you reveal the car with the tilt up. But um, didn't come off quite as well as I'd hoped. This also shot in green screen. That whole dialogue uh, between them, as is this. Pretty much all of our driving is uh, shot on green screen and, and done in visual effects. Sometimes when the car stopped, we shoot it practically. And then that first scene with the girls where they're driving the limo, where they're leaving the White House and they find Berkeley, that was shot on a process trailer. But I really hate shooting dialogue, especially comedy, on a process trailer. They're the worst. You, they, you have to talk to the actors via walkie-talkie. The runs are never long enough. You got to turn them around. Usually it's cold and annoying, and it's just not a good way to do comedy. But um, this shooting all in green screen, they can make it look so good, you really never know the difference. And, uh, and so that's my preferred method of shooting driving scenes. But here, uh, once they're stopped, this was shot all practically on the location. It's a relatively quick scene, and there is a cost-benefit to shooting practical because the car comps do cost money. I, I don't know the exact price for each shot, but it's not cheap. This is a um, real location with a matte painting enhancement, again, by Crafty. Just there's, I don't know if you saw on the left down there, there's a train uh, that had kind of crashed, and then all those buildings that had uh, kind of deteriorated. This was shot in Macon, Georgia, which was a really terrific place to shoot. The Super Bowl was in Atlanta this year while we were shooting, and so we had to get out of town when the Super Bowl was happening because we couldn't get any cops or shut down any roads because all the resources were going to making sure that the Super Bowl was safe and traffic was fine. So we went down to Macon, Georgia, which was a truly lovely place. And they had this incredible 
overpass. It's not a real freeway, but it looks like one. And they let us shut it down for, I think, three or four days um, while we shot these scenes. And we were able to dress it with all of our greenery to make it look overgrown. And at our cars, we just have flatbeds full of junk cars that the production design department would scatter about to make it look like, you know, the apocalypse had happened, like how they kind of stack them up on each other. And then, yeah, this was a real find, this under the overpass. I just think it looks so cool, these giant columns. Uh, originally, it was scripted that they were walking down a hill. And so it, you see that steep hill behind them. Originally, we we're going to uh, stage the scene as they try and get down the hill. And the joke is Madison doesn't have the right shoes. But it was so steep and slippery that the the stunt guy said it wasn't safe to put the actors on it. So we made it into a walk and talk uh, underneath this overpass. And I think it was actually way better. And it was just great that it was also overgrown and looked like, you know, post-apocalyptic. You'll see sometimes some graffiti, I'll point it out here and there, that is based on hobo graffiti, which was during the Depression, hobos would tell each other, there's one right there, that little circle with an arrow. There's water here, there's an angry dog, there's a nice lady who will give you food. Uh, different types of graffiti that they would use to indicate to each other how to navigate uh, to get things and stay safe. Like this is a safe, safe drinking water, watch out for cops here, etc. And so we, we thought it'd be funny if the survivors in the post-apocalypse had brought that graffiti language. You can see that diamond on the left there. That's a hobo graffiti, that two over 10. I don't remember the meanings of them all, but you can Google it. Uh, and so we tried to have that around. And the idea that this was a survivor's camp of some post-apocalyptic uh, survivors who had lasted for a while. They'd set up this tent, had this RV. I don't know why they had an ice cream truck, but they did. And uh, and so we found this location, which was, I think, a chicken processing plant or something in Macon, Georgia, that had been abandoned for a good 10 years. So it really looked, when we showed up, exactly how a place would look if uh, civilization had stopped and no one had been cutting the plants. And then we scattered about, you know, uh, some of those chairs and to make it look, picnic tables, things like that, to make it look like people had been living there. But the idea was that the zombies got them at some point. All the blood I should mention in this is all done digitally, which is a great way to work quickly. You don't have to do squibs and reset. You just have the actors pretend to shoot and then the stunt guys all act like they're getting shot. But VFX blood is so good at this point, there's no real reason to shoot it practically because then you have to change the clothes. It takes forever. It's really a pain in the neck. So I tried to always do digital blood, and I don't think anyone can tell the difference. It looks so good, and it's rel relatively affordable to do. And uh, it's fast and safe and easy. That's our production manager, Will, uh, who I asked if he'd be willing to be a homer, and he was really excited to play a homer in the movie, but he was our UPM of the movie. Uh, that is a digital handover. The stunt guy really jumped off the uh, top of that RV, but he was on wires, and so it was a digital double takeover when he does the face plant. All right, settle down. This is the introduction of the T-800, our very first sighting of a T-800, who are a bigger, badder, harder-to-kill zombie. And this guy, I believe his name is Ari, 
came in uh, and just blew us away with the way he moved his body. He's, uh, I think, has a dance background, but is also a stunt guy. And all of us on set were just blown away by how incredible he was able to uh, move and how kind of unnatural his movements and zombie-like his movements were. And he did this, I don't know how many takes, probably 30 takes in the dirt, getting knocked over, getting back up, crawling on the ground. I mean, this guy was just so impressive and so dedicated. And, and I got to tell you, I think that's the stunt department are, are usually my favorite department because they they just work so hard. They give it their all. They're performers. They're athletes. You know, they're fearless. And they put their body on the line every day. And I'm so grateful for it. But I also find that they're the most organized, most respectful, hardest working department of any uh, in filmmaking. I mean, everybody on a movie works super hard, so it's not fair to play favorites, but I'm always really impressed by stunt people. They're real professionals. This uh, head smash was a, a model of uh, Ari's head that they made and uh, our incredible makeup uh, guru, Tony Gardner, who also did the first Zombieland, is responsible for all the zombie makeup. But he did a full cast of, of his head, uh, and they made it look exactly like him, and then they filled it with goo and uh, had it a breakable skull so that when his boot went down. But I think we did two takes, and uh, it was pretty... Uh, pretty gory, but pretty awesome. And I love Madison's ooh that falls. That it's just such a perfect sum up of Zombieland. We can smash people's heads, but then we make jokes about how gross it is. So I think that kind of sums up the tone of Zombieland. Again, this is green screen driving, not real weed. Uh, we use uh, some herbal cigarettes, I think, for movie making weed. And that was Avin Jogia playing Berkeley. I should give him some credit. He came in too, just ready to jump in the fray and brought so much to the character and is a great singer and and uh, played the guitar and just, I think, did an incredible job of being that somewhat horrible, but uh, hopefully likable Berkeley, who is clearly taking advantage of Little Rock to try and try and take her away from her sister, but uh, he did a great job of being that guy, you're, the last guy you'd want your daughter to run off with. These zombies there scattered about were put in digitally because we had forgot to put some in, in the aftermath, so we just put in digital zombies for that drive off. And then this is a funny joke to me that uh, he drives out with his dream car and instantly pops the both front tires because uh, he didn't see the sign because nature in the last 10 years have taken over. This is a Chung Hoon Chung special. That's what I call any of the shots that Chung Hoon suggests that end up being really great. But I needed a transition to get from that other scene to this scene in a creative way. And he pitched a tracking shot on just their feet. And I love that shot. Um, uh, we also had a really cool shot where we didn't show the car. And it was a this was a one or pulled back to reveal that they were walking to the car. But we had to cut some of the dialogue in the scene because it referenced a scene earlier that we had uh, cut out, so we had to interrupt a beautiful oneer uh, with that shot of the POV. This one we added in those electrical towers uh, with their broken wires. This was a funny concept, this Uber concept. I'm not entirely sure, so don't uh, don't get mad if I'm wrong. But we did a little. Often, when you have a really great script, you do 
a round table with comedy writers and stand-up comedians. And we had a really fun day of bringing in people to read the script and pitch jokes. And I don't remember exactly who pitched it. It may have been Renton Paul or it may have been somebody in that round table. But the idea of her talking about something that had been invented and everyone thinking she's crazy. Because uh, if you do think about it, Uber's a pretty crazy concept of getting in a car with somebody you don't know and trusting them to take you when you're wasted home. Like, if you were to pitch that 10 years ago, that really would sound insane. Um, but Madison has this brilliant idea, and they all laugh at her. But if uh, she'd uh, created that startup, she would be a billionaire by now. We uh, had this other funny scene about jeans where she always wanted to make a jean company. And they'd have, like, cowboy jeans, and they say, like, Gene Autry, and she doesn't know who that is. Or they'd have, like, khakis, like Gene Hackman or uh, Gene Wilder, and had this whole funny run of jeans named after famous people named Gene. Uh, but that, uh, that got beat out by Uber uh, in the final uh, version of the movie. But, yeah, we are always trying to beat our script and beat in every draft of it, make it funnier and better and whether that's the writers doing it themselves or uh, me pitching ideas or the cast pitching ideas or improving on set or the writer's room, we're always just trying to, all the way to the finish line, you know, we we write jokes in ADR. Uh, so there's lines in this movie that are just done after the fact that we record to add in, and I'll point out some of those. But at every step of the way, we're always just trying to make the movie better and funnier and that's why it's great to be able to play it to an audience because you can see what's working and what's not. And um, this line here that Emma says about if you love somebody, shoot them in the face so they don't become a flesh-eating monster. And was so funny. And I hope in the deleted scenes we'll include all the outtakes of that because she probably did it 10 times and just couldn't get through the line because she laughed so much and Jesse was laughing and what he was laughing. And it was such a funny thing, but you could do a... Uh, a bunch of takes of that repeated effort of trying to get that line out because it was so, so funny. Three choices. Let it define you, destroy you, or strengthen you. I love that John Steinbeck reference of Mice and Men that takes place here. Time to go teach Lenny about the rabbits. That is uh, like maybe like a two percenter joke. Doesn't get a lot of laughs. But um, for those that get the reference, I think they find it's really funny. I called this my Miller's Crossing scene. And in fact, on set, I was playing the, the theme from Miller's Crossing through my iPhone. I was trying to evoke that spirit um, where John uh, Turturro begs for his life in the forest, which is one of my favorite scenes and favorite movies, actually. And so this was our little nod to Miller's Crossing. And it has a similar result in that in that movie, uh, Gabriel Byrne's character doesn't kill John Turturro and it comes back to haunt him. And we did the same thing here where Columbus doesn't actually kill Madison, but it doesn't uh, come back to haunt him in quite the same way. This made me laugh when she uh, when she uh, apologized very heartfelt and then tossed her clothes out the door. That was a, a runner that, you know, was built on set. That uh, idea of Tallahassee leaving her bags outside of the car was a pitch that Paul Wernick, one of the writers, was on set that day. He pitched outside the White House uh, to leave her bags, which was so funny and gets a big laugh. And then uh, we thought it'd be funny to just keep getting rid of Madison as they go down the road. So it's a callback with the travel light twice uh, where they toss her stuff out of the car, which was really funny. Her name, her name was Madison. 
you know, and she was a real person, okay? She had, you know, complex feelings and emotions and interests. Another green screen driving scene. You can see a little bit behind Emma. Maybe that doesn't look totally real, but uh, that looks pretty good. And that looks pretty good, but in the wide shot, maybe. What is it that you do on? I don't know. You guys can write letters and tell me what you think. But uh, I think most of the, the driving comps in this movie look pretty good. Even the schmutz on the front of the window is done in post. This was a shot by second unit. We had second unit director Marcus Roundthwaite, who did all of our second unit and was fantastically talented. And uh, he would help me by shooting, you know, like car drive-by exteriors and stuff. And he shot a some action in that RV sequence, some of the zombie kills he shot. Uh, we shot that RV shootout, I should mention, in a day and a half, which is pretty fast for a full zombie battle. Um, but that's why it was good to have second unit kind of help out with some of it. 764 Elvis Presley Boulevard. I feel like a 1954 teeny bopper. And here comes. So this is that same housing development that never happened in the Atlanta suburbs where we shot the exterior of the White House. That is an entire matte painting. We didn't build anything for that. That was just an empty field that uh, I believe Spin was the VFX vendor on this one who painted that White House. And there is a really funny extended version of Tallahassee breaking down and crying here that uh, always made me laugh. But we cut it just because we wanted to keep Tallahassee cool. He walks a fine line between cool and goofy and we tried to always not lean too hard into the goofy but Woody did this hilarious run of just sobbing and weeping and then Emma goes shut up after all the weeping and it was really funny that that's a CG hound dog sign the exterior one there and then everything else uh, was built on location those guitars though didn't have neon on them that was something we added in post that was another idea our VFX editor to light those guys up. But that sign was practical, and the Elvis on the front of the building was practical. This was an old country club, or this was a golf course field house that had been abandoned. The golf course uh, was overgrown. Uh, I guess it, it wasn't too popular, and so there was just this empty old field house uh, sitting there about 45 minutes outside of Atlanta. And we were able to take the whole thing and dress it to look like the hound dog, which was really cool, uh, to be able to have a full interior that was dressed, not built on a set, with an exterior that you can go in and out of, which allows just a level of reality. That's that's always preferred, as opposed to having to build something on a stage. And again, Martin Whiston, um, the production design and set decoration teams just hit it out of the park with this location just super 70s over the top. The idea was it was kind of like a roadside motel, kind of tourist trap for anyone who was visiting Memphis and that they would maybe want to stay at the Hound Dog. And, you know, they tried to make it look like Elvis's place and have mementos from his life, like his actual shoes, uh, which is a really funny laugh. It feels like a Simpsons joke to me where there's no way those are Elvis's actual shoes. And then you point to the sign and... Gets a big laugh. Uh, but yeah, the, these uh, jumpsuits, I should mention, are made by the guy who made Elvis's original jumpsuits. So they're all exact replicas of Elvis's jumpsuits that we were able to buy from him for the movie. 
I guess that guy stays in business because of all the Elvis impersonators in the world. But all these mannequins uh, spread throughout the movie are dressed in real life Elvis Presley jumpsuit uh, replicas. And then for the rest of it, you know, we just, this piano they found on Craigslist. There's Rosario Dawson's attraction. I love that shot of her. She looks very badass and very beautiful and was a great addition to our cast. She and Woody, I think, had either been in a movie in the past or were just friends, and so they knew each other real well and had a great uh, friendship and great on-screen chemistry. And she just brought so much to the table. It was the perfect embodiment of Nevada. I can imagine anyone else playing that character. She was so perfect and was such a delight to work with. This this is interesting in that this is the mention of Bill Murray and who killed Bill Murray and Jesse's run about I don't know who that is uh, kills me every time and when he originally did it on set we were all dying he couldn't even get through it uh, and that's largely improvised that whole Bill Murray run which is about to come up and I just. Uh, I think Jesse's just so funny. He's one of those secret weapons where, like, I don't think he gets the credit as being such a brilliant comedian that he is. You know, he's a terrific actor, obviously, but I don't know that people think of him as, like, the world's funniest guy, but he is so funny, just so bright, so quick-witted. His improv is so fast. Uh, this whole run right here is just, if you listen to it without me chattering over it, you'll appreciate what a genius he is. But um, originally we did a push-in here, and cut to the Bill Murray scene. I don't want to give it away, but Bill Murray's in this movie. But uh, we did this push in on Jesse and then a whip pan, and then we actually went to the Bill Murray scene right in the middle of this scene, and then came back to this scene. And and Columbus, in the midst of all this, says, you know, I'm sorry, I killed the world's funniest comedian of our generation, et cetera, et cetera. And then we cut to the scene and we came back. But it really like put the brakes on the narrative thrust of this movie. And as funny as it is, and as fun as and unexpected as it was to see Bill Murray in the body of the movie, it just really made the middle of the movie feel long and it, it was hard to get back into the scene from there. So um, it was actually Emma's idea when she first saw the movie to put Bill Murray at the very end after the credits. And that was a brilliant idea, and Emma deserves a credit because it's this nice little Easter egg at the end of the film for people to see. It's a really charming little scene between these two. Just great actors, great chemistry. And the story that what he tells is pretty much his own true story about jumping on the table and performing Elvis in the library. I think he did that in his high school right before finals. And uh, I think he'd been a pretty big athlete up to that point. And then upon, you know, performing as Elvis, this girl really did come up to him and ask him if he wanted to join the drama club. And I think in part because he was smitten by Robin Rogers and in part because he loved the attention of everybody when he performed his Elvis, uh, he made a shift to acting in high school. And that is why we can all be thankful to have Woody Harrelson in American Treasure due to this Elvis impression. So this story has a lot of meaning and significance beyond that just to Tallahassee, but also to Woody himself, who's a huge Elvis fan and a, uh, a great Elvis impersonator. Just want to mention how much I love the stained glass in the background here, which they painted from scratch. We had this incredible head painter, Shannon, 
uh, who was another just incredible crew member who brought so much to the table. She did a terrific job on these murals and all the Elvis art that's kind of hand done, the art department, uh, painting department did. And they also did the murals at Babylon. You can also look at those tiki dolls, or those tiki statues in the background, which were sculpted out of styrofoam and painted by those same painters. Uh, they were really incredible. There you go. That, there's a tiki doll right there between the two of them. That, that was actually carved out of styrofoam, and I have one of those in my office right now because I thought they were so cool. So let's talk about Babylon. This is the um, commune that uh, Berkeley invites Little Rock to where there's a bunch of young people, they all hang out, and it's kind of a send-up of the uh, Coachella, Burning Man, woke, millennials kind of generation. This exterior of Babylon, which was a real location, uh, was right kind of in the center of Atlanta on the north side. There was an old what was called Club Europe. I think it was at one point a Holiday Inn or something uh, that had been defunct and derelict and was going to be torn down or converted into another housing development. And so they let us shoot here, and it was a giant piece of land with this derelict tower, and we were able to just bring in these shipping containers, build this wall. The art department, the painters, everybody went above and beyond. You know, the sculptors made all those flowers out of road signs and then this is a real helicopter shot that went to the roof of Babylon and then they had to do some matte paintings to connect the outside of it and then that's that rooftop I'll talk about when we get to later but that was built on us on on the Pinewood facility so the rooftop was in one location but the grounds of Babylon were in another location where all the fighting takes place uh, this was a set that we built the honeymoon suite there was a full scene that probably is on this dvd as well deleted scene where we see uh tallahassee and nevada wooing each other um but we cut it for time the middle of the movie was kind of the hound dog we kind of lost the the thrust of the movie to go find little rock because they spent a lot of time at the hound dog and as funny as it was and as charming as it was we had to cut some for time just to keep the momentum of the movie going. So check out the DVD extras for that very charming scene between Woody and, and Nevada. Now, Luke and Thomas were cast as the doppelgangers. They joined us in Atlanta for four days uh, to shoot these incredibly memorable scenes. This uh, we shot all in one day, this exterior. I don't love the way I staged it, but there was so much talking and so many people talking that I had to keep it pretty simple and static with the six of them in a row. But uh, this rule battle, I just thought would be the funniest thing. In the, when I read the script, I thought it would be the funniest thing in the movie. And it was so fun to get Thomas, who really did uh, a great job playing Jesse's doppelganger. And Luke and Woody are old friends, and so he was a natural... Uh, to play Woody's doppelganger. And they both just came ready to play, both hilarious comedians. Thomas is one of the truly world's greatest improvisers. He's played Carnegie Hall with no script, just showed up and improvised a whole show at Carnegie Hall with his partner, Ben Schwartz, uh, just an immensely talented guy. And, and so this Jesse uh, Thomas back and forth is so, so funny to me and is um, includes a ton of improv. 
they just riffed and riffed and riffed and we couldn't use it all. But all this Terminator stuff is so funny to me and was all improvised. And uh, and one of my favorite lines of the movie, when Jesse says his favorite movie is Fantasia, was improvised in the moment. And these guys are so in their characters and in their scenes that I remember saying to Jesse while I was editing, you know, months after we'd shot it, that one of my favorite things was when he said that Fantasia was his favorite movie. And, and Jesse said he didn't even remember saying it. And it's, you know, forever going to be on film as, as what I think is one of the funniest uh, jokes in the movie. Uh, this rule battle with these uh, graphics, I think, is uh, really fun. And it was great to be able to uh, have their rules compete back and forth. And I think that the graphics just add another level. For example, when Beware Bathrooms is peeing on the ground, that is uh, a nice uh, little addition. Uh, so the animators of the rules did a great job, as did the actors in this scene. And it was just a really, really fun day shooting a full day of this scene. You know, it's only a couple minutes in the movie, but because there's so many different angles, we, we took a full day to shoot it, which is often challenging because there's different lighting conditions. We were pretty lucky in that the cloud cover was there for most of it, but you'll notice there's a few shots looking towards Thomas where he has bright sunlight on him and everybody else, you know, Jesse has flat shade and we try and make it all match as best as we can when we do the color correction, but you'll, you'll notice that it does vary a little bit because uh, you don't shoot these in real time. You shoot these... Uh, over the course of a full day. Um, the monster truck, I should talk about, Big Fat Death. There's a really incredible guy named Kevin King who is a professional monster truck driver, and that is his monster truck. We created the shell for it. The uh, Big Fat Death expedition graphics and shell were put onto his monster truck's body, but he did uh, all the driving of the monster truck and uh, was just a great partner he had never worked on a movie before, so I think he enjoyed it, um, but it was a lot of work uh, to do for sure. Um, and that beast, I should mention, that presidential limo is a leftover from White House Down, which was a Sony movie. And uh, they had two of those beasts built for that film, and they had them in a warehouse someplace, and they let us use them for this film so we didn't have to build those limos from scratch. They were actually leftovers from White House Down, and we destroyed them. Uh, so no one else can ever use them again. This uh, this is one of the things I'm most proud of in this movie, is this fight between the doppelgangers. Um, and I should give Marcus and Glenn, our stunt coordinator, credit for coming up with the idea of doing it as a one-er. I'm actually a little ahead of myself because it doesn't happen quite yet. This is um, the face-off... Uh, this is when they're all hanging out and they hear the bolts slash T-800s outside. They go to the window. There's some really funny jokes in here. Like, uh, this is great having two of you uh, as an Emmeline I love. Right there. But uh, Emma's so funny. I mean, she's just the greatest. If you watch this movie after I'm done talking... You watch this movie with the sound off and just watch Emma Stone in every scene, you will be blown away by how incredibly real and in the moment she is in every single scene. If you watch her even moving forward, just watch Emma's expressions. 
she doesn't have a ton of lines in this movie. She's not, you know, the, the you could argue she's not the main character, but she is so good in every single moment. Her reactions, her expressions, everything she does is so funny. I'll point out a couple of my favorite moments, um, but she's just a true genius and is uh, worthy of all the acclaim and she gets because she's truly just one of the, the greatest of all time. All right, so now we're back to where I was about to get started as to this uh, hound dog fight. Uh, the idea is that these guys went out, took care of the T-800s, but in the process not only took a Polaroid, which there's no explanation for, but they come back and it turns out that they have been bitten. We see that little bite there on Luke's uh, arm. Hopefully the audience doesn't know it before Nevada does. I should have put it on the other side of his arm, but I didn't. Uh, and so it's there the whole time as opposed to a reveal. But she points it out. How she sees it, I don't know, because it's not on the back of his arm. But she sees it. And uh, we find out that, indeed, Albuquerque has been bitten and also has Flagstaff. And so Marcus and Glenn proposed this hound dog fight as a oneer. Uh, but using several cuts to make it seem like one. So I'm going to give away some trade secrets because I think that's the point of these DVD commentaries. I can't tell you how many I listened to and how much I learned from hearing directors talk about how they made their movies. So for anyone who wants to know how this was done, I'm going to give you the secrets. I think there are seven or eight cuts in this whole sequence, and we would shoot each piece of it up until we thought we'd gotten it right, and then it... Um, and then we would use the wipe or the cut or the whip to get the next piece. And we shot it in sequence over, I think it took about a day and a half to shoot this entire fight, piecing all these things together. It was a combination of Steadicam and dollies. Obviously, all the blood is done in post, as are uh, some of the hits, uh, like with the statue at the end. But it's... It's really cool, and maybe in, uh, they'll include on the DVD the actual rehearsal that the stunt guys did for this. Uh, the previs is what it's called, where you can see kind of how they mapped out this whole fight, and then basically we showed up and we just executed it. And they rehearsed with uh, the actors for a day prior to shooting, but it was very limited. Uh, so here's our first cut coming up on this whip pan. There's a cut there. That's actually a stunt guy, not Thomas, and then he gets out of the way. Thomas comes in without a cut, uh, and then he fights because that scorpion that he does when he goes down on his face was a little too tricky for Thomas to do. So uh, Thomas scattered in, but I got to give the credit to the actors because this is for the most part them doing all their own action and fighting. This is all still one shot uh, up until Columbus crosses here. This is cut. This is now a stunt guy playing Columbus. Those are stunt guys playing those guys. This is stunt guy. And there we cut again. And now we're back to Thomas and Jesse. But that little piece was all stunt guys. And now this is a uninterrupted steady cam shot uh, with the actors doing all their own fighting. Uh, that's a breakaway pool stick made out of balsa wood. And right now here we have a really quick cut, cut. That's stunt guys, cut. That's our guys. So it's so fast, you, if you blink, you don't even see it. Uh, but then that's a cut there to Emily. Actually, I'm not sure if that, I don't think that was a cut. That was, that was done real. But here we have another cut coming up as we cross the Tiki doll. That's a cut right there. And this is a new take, but this plays through all the way to the end. So this was the very last 
uh, piece of it. And I was getting the feed from the, um, from the video guy, the playback guy, and I was cutting this in real time in iMovie on my computer. So just to make sure that we had it, every single time we'd get a new piece, I'd add it into my computer and I was assembling this oneer, as it were, as we went through. And then this is all one take, the final take. And then what's incredible is after she says, those guys are dicks, which was an improv, I said cut, and then everyone just cheered, and it was such a, we all felt like we'd really made something special uh, with that fight sequence, which plays as a one shot, but is actually a lot of cuts. And now this is a uh, really funny zombie kill of the year. I thought it would be funny to have like a giant building. It's so, you know, Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner, but, uh, but I just thought this was a funny idea that he was using. It's so so silly to be using a jack to knock over the leaning tower of Pisa. But we wanted something with scale. We thought it'd be fun to see if there were survivors outside of America. And so uh, this Pisa idea came up. This was shot in a parking lot at the stage. The only things that are real are the actors, the jack, a small piece of uh, the wall that he's jacking up, and then the ground. But everything else is done digitally. The entire environment of Pisa was created uh, in CG based off the real Pisa reference. Um, but that was Spin, I believe, who did that, and they did a really good job uh, on on that, that painting. This is uh, a funny scene where Tallahassee tries to drive his dream car, the monster truck, but can't. Um, and uh, I'll get to that in a minute after we have this very intense makeout scene between Woody and Rosario. It's, it's it's good that they were friends because they really kind of went for it here. And Emma's reaction is so funny. Uh, we have to get back on the road and find my sister interrupting it. And then uh, Rosario gives Woody this ring, which is actually a real repli replica of one of Elvis Presley's rings. It says TCB which stands for taking care of business, which was his motto, and it has lightning bolts on it. And that's a real actual replica made by the jeweler who made Elvis Presley's real diamond version of that ring. This is not diamond ring, but a knockoff, but, a, but it was made by the actual same guy that made Elvis's rings. And that TCB is Elvis's uh, taking care of business. That's Kevin King, the monster truck driver, jumping up that wheel, I don't wanna let anyone know that that wasn't Woody, but it was Kevin King, who's also driving the truck now and knocking these things over practically, destroying those guitars, which are made out of wood, balsa wood. But this is pretty cool. When he knocks over this one, the neon is all done in post because there wasn't actually any neon on that one. So all that smoke's fake and everything from the leftover. And then this is Kevin King really knocking into the beast. And it's just amazing how these things all fell perfectly. We did not plan that. And then Woody was shot on a green screen uh, driving the monster truck. Um, this is a great joke. Leave a note. And I love that look between those two. That's an example of Emma just being amazing as she is here in her reaction. We, I, I thought this was another funny runner, this, this uh, how Woody hates the uh, rear view mirror or the side mirror. He, you know, he hits it when he first sees it on breakaway mirrors and then he hits it again when he comes to the second time when they go back to the, our, uh, the transport, and then that time he 
yeah, kicks it off. And so that's one of those things that just kind of evolves while you're shooting. You're like, the first time he did it on his own, that was funny. And then the next time, it's like, oh, you should hit it. And this time, I think he came up with the idea of kicking it. It's another green screen driving shot, which is pretty cool because it mixes green screen driving with practical driving, as we'll see in just a second. Um, this is all green screen. I think this shot coming up of Emma... So that's a real POV of the truck on a railroad. This is all done in post, and I love her reaction there. Uh, and that's Zoe actually in the truck, driving it herself, and us shooting her from a camera car. This is them on green screen, and then this shot is actual stunt drivers driving the cars, uh, almost ramming each other, and then Zoe acting and driving all at the same time. She's self-driving that car on that road. And then now we're back to green screen in, and this is my, we're about to see my favorite shot in the whole movie. It's a really quick shot, but the expression that Emma and Woody make when she says that she thought she was trying to bite him, not that he minded it last time, that we do a quick cut to them. That's my favorite shot in the whole movie. The expression on those two's faces, those those grimaces they both make, uh, makes me laugh every time I watch the movie. It's just so funny to me, even though it's probably less than a second. It's Their faces are so funny. So again, green screen driving. She is so funny, Zoe. And when she says, I used to live in a freezer, why not a freezer on wheels? I mean, she must have done... 10 takes, and she every time she made it sound more insane. This is a day-for-night shot. We actually shot that as a day drive-by, and because we didn't have any night drive-bys, the computer guys made it look like a night drive-by and added in the anamorphic flare. This was an improvised montage. This is actually kind of cool, uh, that last shot where she says we should move to Temptation Island. We actually took her head from a different cut and put it on that one so we didn't have to have a cut because she didn't actually say it right then. And we cut out Zoe's head and put it on our own body so that there wouldn't be a cut. And then the slight callback to a montage that we did in the first movie where they're talking about Hannah Montana and other things. Um, this was all done uh, in post here. That Dawn shot, uh, I think, is really nice. Our editor, Dirk Westerfeld, who deserves a lot of credit for making this movie what it is, uh, pitched that Dawn idea and would not let it go, and it is in the movie. Um, again, green screen driving, where should they see Babylon? I love that Zoe calls it Babylon, uh, another Zoe Deutsch original. Uh, just the thought to pronounce it Babylon. So funny, gets a big laugh, and uh, is all to her credit. It was fun shooting those. We shot pretty much all those green screen driving scenes with the four of them in probably a day or two at the very end of the shoot. And it's just so fun and so relaxed and just great form for improv. This is another example of, this place is so cute. This is another example of Zoe saying soy uh, instead of so, which is funny. And then we blew up this car practically, which looked pretty awesome, but we did some enhancement and added that rear view or that side mirror flying through the air as its final send off. But that uh, explosion was actually done practically. And the school bus was a neat idea as the gateway into Babylon. I really think that turned out well in the lotus flower on the front of it. Works good. That's a funny cutaway joke. Uh, why don't you go wait in the car and you see that it's on fire? 
And then we had a scene that followed this where we actually showed them melting their guns, but uh, we kind of already seen that happen. It was a bit redundant, and so we just cut to them coming straight up onto the roof. If there's one thing I could reshoot in this movie, we didn't do any reshoots for the film, which is uh, rare these days. I would have loved a slightly more heartfelt reunion and a little bit more milking this moment of finding Little Rock, because this is the big payoff for the whole film, and it happens pretty quickly. That is, uh, you know, they're all terrific in the scene, but I just wish we'd given a little bit more dialogue or acknowledgement of the fact that what it means to find her. This group sex runner is a funny thing. Uh, we had a couple more instances of it that we had to cut out. All right, so I'll talk about uh, this rooftop set, which is really incredible. Uh, it was built in record time. Martin is truly a genius, our production designer, and so resourceful. They would just go around to junkyards, and he would just get inspired by what he found in the junkyard. So if he found uh, some big tanks, he figured out how to make them. Uh, you know, Wizard of Oz or Alice in Wonderland tanks. There's weed everywhere, which I think they got left over from the Sony warehouses from Pineapple Express. Uh, they actually built these trees. We had a greens department keeping all these uh, plants, which were real, growing throughout this. It was built outside uh, on a big flat pad at Pinewood where they shot tons of adventure. I think this is where they shot the waterfall for Black Panther, this big pad, and it's surrounded by blue screen. It's not really in the sky, so all that sky is sky replacement. Martin and, the, again, the painters just did an incredible job making look this look like a place that had actually been there, that these hippies had just built their kind of dream commune from scratch. We'll see it in this wide shot that comes right now really well, just how big a set that is. I mean, it's 150 feet wide. It has greenhouses, it has trees, it has fire. It has so many different things, and it's just a credit to Martin and the hardworking people in the, the art department who were able to build this, and I think in like eight weeks, again, using shipping containers and all kinds of different things that they found at a junkyard. It's actually two levels, so uh, our construction coordinator, Curtis Crow, also deserves a huge shout-out. If you want to do yourself a favor and learn about filmmaking, Google Curtis Crow's Ten Commandments of Filmmaking. It's something that any aspiring person who wants to work in the film industry should read. It's a manifesto about what it takes to be a great filmmaker. And Curtis is a really special guy. He was a pretty well-known punk rock band and then uh, based in Athens and then became a construction coordinator. And he's responsible for building all these incredible sets and uh, there were huge efforts, you know, whether it was the hound dog on location, the White House uh, from scratch, this from scratch. I mean, it really is hard to do the post-apocalypse. And I'll be honest, our budget was uh, not what it should have been for this movie. Everybody was really stretched and they were just um, so resourceful and worked so hard. And yeah, even there, you can see like those gates that are behind them just to make the, the balcony made out of old headboards. Martin found a bunch of old beds at a junkyard, and so he decided he'd, he'd build a, a little wall uh, out of headboards. But there's instances like that throughout that you can barely even notice. There's a whole canopy that's built out of bicycle tires. This was shot by second unit, this uh, Tallahassee driving down the road and all the zombies chasing him. I shot Woody on green screen, which we'll see right here. This is on green screen of him singing the public domain song, so we didn't have to pay for it, Home on the Range. And 
this was shot green screen, but this was shot by second unit in a field out in the sticks in, in, in outside of Atlanta. And we had not nearly as many zombies as we needed, so they had to uh, use a lot of CG zombies for those herd shots. I think we only had about 80 zombies, and we needed it to look like hundreds or thousands of zombies were running. And so a lot of those zombies were CG zombies done by Rodeo, who we'll get to in a second because they were our principal VFX vendor for all the zombie stuff at the end of the movie, and they just truly hit it out of the park including those fireworks, which are CG. So again, just so you can see the scale of this, this location that they built, uh, AstroTurfed up, and uh, just so incredible. That's a boat that's behind them. They just, anything they found, there's a food truck there. You know, they just built so much and colored it and looked just so incredible. Um, all the paintings were done by our talented painters in the art department. It's just a shame that it's not standing anymore, but it's crazy. You know, you build this thing, uh, shoot these scenes for like a week or two, and then it's gone. Uh, but it will live forever on film, and everyone's hard work paid off because it really uh, is such a special location. Our extras, too, were really terrific. These guys, you know, any of these night scenes, you have to think that we shot these from, you know, probably... 7 p.m. till 7 a.m. So all these extras, it was shot in January and February in Atlanta, which is very, very cold. It was freezing. We'd have heat lamps, and these guys are dressed in, like, you know, T-shirts and hardly anything. And it was, you know, 40 degrees at night, and we'd shoot all night, and they were just never a complaint. They worked so hard. They had to do some, you know, during the battle stuff, some pretty physically demanding things, and they were just... Really great. Um, this actor, the Civil War General Victor, is another guy i got to give a little shout-out to, as well as Devin, who's the guy in the hat on the left, who's a, a friend of Jesse's who came down from New York to be in the movie, which was really, we were lucky to have him. But this guy, Victor, has a lot of laughs in the movie, and he was a great find, a local Atlanta casting. Uh, I don't know that he'd done many big movies before this, but he was just so excited to be a part of this. And he has some improv that made it into the film and was just a great guy to have around. This is our planning sequence, uh, which is a bit of a trope in movies, but uh, it seems appropriate, so we understand what their plan to battle. The horde of T-800s that are coming their way is, and uh, our composer, I should mention, Dave Sardi, who did the score for the first movie, pretty much... There's a ton of music throughout this movie, and he pretty much here to the end is entirely covered in music, and it's really powerful, compelling music. That's an entirely CG crowd running towards uh, the tower. It was a daytime plate that they made night. This uh, we all shot first unit with our uh, cast. Uh, pretty much all of this. Hi there for anyone who gets the references. A reference to Dr. Strangelove. That's what they put on the bomb that uh, Slim Pickens rides. That is a stunt guy. These are the only second unit pieces of the planning montage. Uh, those are all stunt guys. They're kinking over the thing. But now we're back to our real actors, Woody and Abigail, putting up this peace sign firework um, beacon. So their basic strategy is that they're going to summon the zombies. They're going to create an opening for them and then get them trapped uh, in this... Uh, ring of fire, and then blow blow them up. This is one of our biggest jokes, this kick some dicks. 
uh, is one of our biggest laughs in the movie. So the idea is that they'll entrap the zombies in fire and then blow them up with their tank full of biodiesel. And so uh, the idea here is that they'll light it all up as the zombies are coming. And I think we're about to see a fully CG shot of zombies. Oh, no, those are real zombies. That is a CG map painting with some practical people running. And then this is an entirely CG shot of zombie hordes coming towards uh, their beloved Babylon. These are all our real actors doing all their real stunts. Abigail has a real fear, fear of fire and was not thrilled to do this, but was a trooper. Again, these guys shot all night in very cold weather. We shot all the first unit stuff with the zombies and the actors. This is second unit here. If there's just zombies for the most part, it's second unit and then like that second unit. And this is a CG handover, so that's practical. And now we're into an entirely CG shot that all those people jumping and all that is uh, is CG, except for those next two cuts. Those were real stunt guys jumping. But so I shot all the uh, stuff. Those are CG zombies in there with real fire, real stunt guys jumping real stunt guys, and then those are CG, CG zombies. So I shot um, all the stuff with our actors and a lot of the stuff uh, with the zombies in four days here. And then everything with the monster truck, our second unit shot um, without me for the most part. I think I shot a little bit, but uh, that explosion was practical uh, with some CG enhancement, uh, that is CG. And then uh, CG smoke, and then real zombies uh, can mix with CG zombies coming over the wall. So these are real zombies, and then we see CG zombies pouring over the side. This whole uh, sequence we kind of conceived of, we had real budget challenges, so we had to figure out how to scale it back. And so we kind of had to figure this out while we were shooting what this sequence would be, and this whole concept. Originally, it was uh, much different. It took place inside a location that we didn't have. There was a version where our guys were trying to kill zombies with fireworks, which just seemed ridiculous. So we arrived at that idea of trying to blow them up. And then I really liked the idea that we had a third act zombie battle without any guns. I thought that was really good because we've seen plenty of shooting zombies. And I thought it'd be good to, within Babylon, take away their weapons so that they're stuck and they have to use their smarts in order to get away from the zombie horde. And I think that was uh, Wernick and Reese, the writers of the movie, who came up with that, but I definitely was an advocate of a no-gun zombie battle. So yeah, that's a second unit shot of the monster truck coming through. And then Kevin King, once again, doing that real jump uh, to get us in here. Those are all CG zombies. That's a real guy. But for the most part, all these crowd shots with the monster truck are CG zombies. Um, because you can't run a monster truck. It's just not safe to have a monster truck with people around because they're somewhat unpredictable. So anything with the actors in it, like there, uh, it's it's first unit, me shooting it. Those are real uh, actors because the car stopped. But now that the car's driving, it's a combination of a green screen shot with an incredible rig, uh, this, this rig where they can make the... Uh, car lurch and leap and go wherever it wants on a green screen stage for our actors that are um, special effects coordinator JD Schwalm provided for us uh, at a very reasonable cost and then all the uh, so that's second unit shooting a plate of a monster truck driving and all the 
Zombies climbing it on our CG. Those are all CG zombies. CG zombies, real monster truck, CG zombies. And the monster truck sequence was actually a little bit longer, um, but we cut it back due to cost because we couldn't afford all those CG zombies. That's a CG car flying in a flip, and that's a CG car landing. Those are the only two CG car shots in the movie. Everything else, actually there's three. There's the one where it rears up and then those two. Uh, and then everything else is shot um, practically with Kevin King driving his monster truck and then adding CG zombies. I shot that uh, the truck rolling over, which took, I will not lie, a bunch of tries to get right. Uh, but finally, we were able to get on its side. It's not easy to roll a monster truck. And then uh, everything else here is first unit uh, from this point on. So this was a funny idea of the guys dropping... Uh, stuff off the roof. So these are stunt guys, bam, bam, getting hit. And so they actually react like they're getting hit, but all the stuff falling was added in post. Those are CG watermelons and cinder blocks and everything else uh, falling on our actors who are uh, stunt guys who are just taking the falls uh, like this guy uh, with stuff added in post. And there's a, I think one of those guys, I think the guy gets hit by a barrel is a CG guy, but for the most part, they're all real. This. Uh, staircase thing we shot in like three hours in the middle of the night from like I don't know four in the morning till six in the morning everyone was exhausted it was a, at the end of this whole sequence when we we're doing the exterior of Babylon uh, and we shot this whole thing in two hours this this little piece here but there's not a lot to it it's just a bunch of zombies chasing our heroes this uh, shot I love uh, when we got into the DI we saw that there was rain all over it so they had to clean it up in post to take the rain out because uh, we hadn't seen it the whole time we we're editing. But I love this slow-mo sequence. It's a slight nod to the first Zombieland. And the score uh, is a real credit to Dave Sardi and how beautiful the score is. And it also evokes the first Zombieland. Uh, he wrote a, uh, a song called The Ecstasy of Blood, which was a nod to Sergio Leone's, uh, or Morricone's classic Ecstasy of gold from the good, mad, the ugly, which we had as a temp score for all Zombieland one. And then Dave wrote the incredible piece that was called Ecstasy of Blood, which we used as part of uh, the temp music for this. And then he came up with an even uh, more powerful, that CG shot of the zombies falling. And this is Woody, for the most part, uh, on a wire hanging from that thing. Uh, there's a, his stunt double did a little bit of the work, but almost all of it is Woody actually hanging from that thing. And this was all done with first unit, um, jumping off just a platform into mats. And then the sky beyond is all just blue screen. Uh, there was a, a bunch of mats off that platform, like, like with a 10 foot drop here that these guys would just jump 10 feet down. There's a little bit of second unit here, like this shot here. In this shot, anything that's like uh, they had to draw, build a like 30 foot tall platform uh, in order to get some of those wider shots. But I shot all the tighter stuff here. And these two guys, the cop and robber, handcuffed together was really fun. This idea of hitting them in the nuts was something they came up with on the day. Gets a huge laugh. Another example of improv in the film. Um, but yeah, I love this payoff of uh, the uh, headshot. Uh, by Little Rock. As to why they don't have metal detectors in Babylon, I couldn't tell you. Uh, you would have thought more people would have smuggled guns in. Uh, but lucky for us, Little Rock brought her, brought her Elvis gun, which uh, Tallahassee gave her, which has a lot of sentimental value and has a nice payoff to the setup from the opening scene at Christmas morning. 
She saves her father figure with the gun he gave her. It's really nice. And then, then this was really fun. This was all improv, all this stuff. But I couldn't, we didn't really fig- plan out how to get him back on. So uh, we had to figure this out on the day. And they came up with this idea of a human chain and Columbus reaching out. And it was kind of a mess figuring this out, but it all worked out. And then we have a lot of um, kind of payoffs here in order. The father-daughter payoff of thanking her. And I love this line, uh, I smoked a lot of weed, which I think uh, Abigail came up with on the day. And then we have this payoff uh, of Wichita and Columbus. I got to say, if you watch the deleted scenes, you'll see there is this whole alternate reality version of Columbus and Wichita, which when she says in her line, uh, zombie land or not, we are meant to be together, that's a reference to this parallel universe of, of them, which we actually shot Columbus working in an arcade and her being a hustler, working as a, a poker hustler, and them meeting in a bar in this parallel universe version. But when we cut it into the movie, it um, just felt like a really weird thing at this important moment with where we've been watching them have this emotional kind of come come together moment and then cutting away to this parallel universe that just was really jarring. And so those scenes, unfortunately, were all cut out, but hopefully will be on the DVD and you can watch what never uh, was, which was these uh, scenes between Columbus and Wichita about what happened if they had met in, in the previous life before Zombieland. Here's a payoff with... Uh, Tallahassee and Nevada, finding out her first name is Reno, the biggest little city in the world, which, because at the beginning, she says that she's Nevada. This is as close as you'll get. And then she opens up and says uh, she's actually Reno. This is a fun payoff uh, with Madison and Berkeley making out. And then a final Homer payoff uh, to the very first set of Homers from the beginning of the movie. So uh, a lot of payoffs all at once, um, but hopefully satisfying. And then a quick uh, walk off to party, uh, tilt up to the fireworks, uh, which I didn't really have a great end of the movie shot. So I just told the guys when we were shooting, just tilt up, tilt up. I'll figure it out later. And then I came up with the idea of adding weed fireworks and happy face fireworks, which is kind of fun. And then this is a payoff to Elvis's uh, car that Columbus says at the beginning it takes a real man to drive a pink Cadillac. This is in fact a pink Cadillac, uh, which we're lucky enough to find in Georgia. It's a beautiful car that uh, we were able to rent for the production. Very valuable. Uh, I think 56 Cadillac. Um, and then this payoff of home is uh, the not a place. So Columbus had been looking for a home at the very beginning of the movie. That's his drive. And then he realizes that home is wherever you're with the people you love, which is a really nice message for us all to appreciate uh, as they drive off into the sunset, chased by a CG zombie. We shot originally this with a real zombie in the car taking off, but the car actually died and we weren't able to shoot the zombie uh, chasing the car. And so we had to do a reshoot uh, and uh, had some issues. And so we had to go with the CG zombie there, which I don't love, uh, but it is what it is. Okay, so we watch these bunch of credits and then get to hear Woody Harrelson's rendition of Burning Love. Uh, 
uh, which he recorded uh, just a few weeks ago and did an incredible job, hit it out of the park, I think. If Elvis was still alive, he should be worried uh, that someone is going to take his job because Woody is an incredible. Um, but we have this funny uh, VO by Columbus telling us that he feels guilty for having taken out um, Bill Murray. And so he wanted to make it up to us by showing us what happened to Bill Murray. And so since he killed him in the last movie, and that was some people's favorite part of the film, we really knew we wanted to have another cameo in this film, and there was no way we are going to be able to beat uh, the Bill Murray cameo. So we tried to figure out a way to get Bill into the movie, and so we thought the only way we could justifiably do it is if we went back earlier in time to 2009, the day that the outbreak first broke, and we imagined that he was in the middle of promoting Garfield 3, a movie that does not exist in real life, but maybe uh, it would have if there hadn't been for a zombie apocalypse. And uh, he's at a junket, which actors have to do to promote their films and they usually don't love, and it's no surprise that Bill Murray doesn't love doing. Uh, we were nice enough to get all these real-life journalists, Al Roker, Josh Horowitz, and a couple other really talented journalists be a part of this film to add credibility to the real-life junket. Al was a true sport in agreeing to be a zombie and to vomit on film. Uh, he's a real amazing, another national treasure, Al Roker, uh, just a truly great guy and a great sport, and was uh, fun to see him, him and Bill because they've had a long-standing relationship through all of the years. And uh, they had a great rapport, and he did his own stunts which is pretty cool, as did Bill, actually. We had a stunt actor to play Bill Murray dressed in this identical, ridiculous wardrobe, but Bill uh, ended up just doing all the stunts himself, which is pretty impressive. He, he really shined. We shot this whole sequence in about an hour and a half. We uh, took too long doing all those uh, junket interviews because Bill was just improvising a ton and it was so funny that we were running out of light. And so we shot this uh, kind of like at the very end of the day, there was a giant window. Uh, and so we couldn't really cheat it. We had to just get it done. And so we shot this whole fight sequence, which Bill had only rehearsed for one day briefly with a bunch of stunt actors. We shot this all basically in about an hour and a half. Three cameras, maybe about six takes and just made our way through it. Uh, and the movie concludes with I Hate Mondays, uh, a famous Garfield quote. So thanks so much for listening to this commentary. Uh, uh, for anyone who made it through, I really appreciate it. I've gotten so much out of commentaries uh, throughout the years. Movies that I've loved, I've gone and listened to the commentaries to try and learn some of the behind-the-scenes secrets of how they made the movies I love so much and I, I find them really valuable. So hopefully this was of some value to anyone who was patient enough to listen to all my rambling. The credits, um, I gotta tell you, there's a lot of people who aren't included in the credits that should be. I'm not exactly sure why studios do this, but they really restrict the amount of people that you can put in the credits and it breaks my heart uh, because so many people work so hard on these films and not all of them receive the credit they're due. 
So not only should you uh, watch each of these names that go by and appreciate their contribution to the film because a film is the most collaborative art form and everybody, every single person who's listed has uh, contributed in some significant way to this film. Uh, you should know that there's also a lot of people who unfortunately due to studio policy are not allowed to be included in, in these credits. And they also, you know, made tons of sacrifices working long hours, being away from their family, working through the night in the cold to, in order for this movie to be what it was. So I always uh, want to give a lot of credit to everyone who contributed to the film and let them all know just how grateful I am for everything they did, uh, especially this rodeo vfx department because they i think they had only eight or ten weeks to do all of those zombie shots and i think they just did a spectacular job making all those zombies look photoreal and that monster truck battle uh, honestly so far exceeds my expectations it's it's always a little scary when you shoot a monster truck driving around an empty parking lot and you're told it's going to look amazing uh, it's a real leap of faith to know that the visual effects are gonna come out looking good when you don't have anything real there. And it's to Rodeo's credit that they made a sequence that I think is really exceptional. And given the short amount of time and the limited budget, so far exceeds uh, my expectations. The All of the VFX vendors were terrific on this movie. and. There's some VFX that are just so subtle that you wouldn't even know that they're happening. I tried to point out as many as I could uh, throughout the film, but just know that there's tons more. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to Johnny, who was our in-house visual effects artist and comper, who probably did over 100 shots, if not more, in this movie. Uh, some things are hard, some things easy, but was with us every step of the way and worked um, so hard to deliver this film to you. And I just am really thankful for you guys all listening to this. And we included this little tag at the end of the movie, kind of as a nod to the original where we had an outtake from uh, the Garfield scene uh, with Bill Murray and Woody at the very end of the movie. I wanted to have another little Bill Murray tag. so. We included this outtake that made us laugh of Bill doing a Spanish version of a hairball. Uh, so I will stop talking, leave you with that, and thank you again for checking out this commentary and for checking out Zombieland Double Tap. In Espanol, it's like... Uh, pardon my accent. <laughs>